Well, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me this morning. And uh, I know in the bulletin it says we are continuing with Joseph this morning, but uh, in the end I have decided against that just for today. I want you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Uh, The book of Isaiah in chapter 8. Isaiah in chapter 8. And I want to read uh, verses 16 through 22. Uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 16 through 22. This is the Word of God, and this is what we read, uh, beginning there in verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in Him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. To the teaching, to the testimony. This Wednesday will be October 31st, Reformation Day. It will be the 495th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, statements, short statements of truth that he nailed to uh, the door of the church there in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, Many looked at that as sparking the Protestant Reformation. This Wednesday night we're going to celebrate that with hot dog supper, biography of Luther, cakewalk, uh, trunk treats, all of those great things. But the Reformation was not mainly about Luther, It was not mainly about Zwingli or Calvin or Knox or any of those guys that God used to help bring the Protestant Reformation about. Rather, at its core, the Protestant Reformation was about God bringing His people back to the teaching, to the testimony. The Protestant Reformation was God bringing His people back to the central teachings of the Bible. Through the Reformation, God was strengthening His church, bringing her back to gospel clarity, preparing her for what I believe is the final stage of earth's history. Uh, Ever since the Reformation, the churches have been actively going, going, going to the four corners of the globe with a clear gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Since the Reformation, Christ has been building His church. Now, He was doing it before the Reformation. 
redemption. In, in the Middle Ages, Christ was building His church, but it was on a much smaller scale. The gospel had become so much corrupted in so much of the world that, that there were very few, very few places on all of planet earth where the truth of Christ crucified for sinners to be received by faith alone was still being preached, still being believed. The Reformation was the recovery of the gospel. And since then, the pace of kingdom expansion, the pace of getting the gospel to the world has quickened. In fact, in every century, Since the Reformation, the gospel has gone further and reached more people than in the century before. We can now say that the gospel is in every political nation in the world. It has reached most, though certainly not all, of the ethno-linguistic people groups of the world. Now, there are still many people left to reach. But there can be no doubt that Christ appears to be nearer to the end rather than the beginning of building His kingdom. The gospel has gone far and wide. You see, the Protestant Reformation was God's act of causing His truth to be rescued from false teaching so that millions, including you and I, could be reached with the gospel and saved. Now, during the Reformation, thousands of men, of women, of boys, of girls became so convinced of God's truth that they were willing to lay down their lives for these truths. Um, The stories are far more numerous than than I could tell. We could be here a full 24 hours recounting the stories of all of those men, women, boys, and girls who died in the days of the Reformation because they came to believe in the true God gospel. These were days of conviction. These were days when people were willing to live and to die for the things that they held to be true. This is something we need more of in our culture. People of conviction. People who know what they believe and believe it so strongly and believe it so important that they would have their head cut off before they would dare renounce any of those truths. So we're going to get back to Joseph next week. But what I want to do is take time today to bring to us a message about the most important truths of all. What are the truths from the Bible that you and I should be willing to live and die for? What are the non-negotiables? What are the doctrines at which we say, this is a line in the sand, and I will never give this truth up? I want to draw our attention to the five cries of the Reformation. And uh, church, you ought to never, ever, ever call a pastor who does not preach and emphasize these five truths. You should never consider a person truly saved by God if they do not believe these five truths. Um, As Christianity continues to come under greater and greater attack in our society, these are the truths we must defend at all cost because if we lose these truths we lose the gospel. And that means future generations would be like the Middle Ages 
and millions would live and die and go to hell, never having faithfully received the gospel handed down to them. And so if we care about the salvation of future generations, we must be serious about believing, defending, standing for, and passing on these truths. So I want to teach these five cries of the Reformation. I want to show you that they are biblical. I want to make sure that we as a church have a solid understanding of what they mean. And I want to ask you if you are living these cries out in your life. Um, I read from Isaiah 8 at the beginning of the sermon to the testimony, and I think you will see why in a moment. But my text this morning is all of the Bible. This is one of those rare, big picture sermons where we're not just asking, what does the Bible as a whole teach? We're asking, what does the Bible as a whole emphasize as being the most important truths in the world? Now, that means we're going to be looking at five points We're going to look at two of them this morning, three of them tonight. The five cries of the Reformation. Number one, number one, the first cry of the Reformation, the most foundational pillar of the Reformation was this one. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Everybody say, Sola Scriptura. Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola alone. Scripture alone. After centuries of being led by the Pope and the cardinals and the priests of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, the Reformation was a movement of going back to the Bible, back to the Scriptures, to recover true biblical Christianity. To the teaching to the testimony. That was the Reformation call. Do not look elsewhere for infallible truth. Look to the Word. This cry was a challenge to the religious leaders of that time. The challenge said, no longer just tell us that something is true. Prove to us it is true. Give us chapter. Give us verse. Prove to us from the pages of the Bible that what you say we are to do is something that God would have us do. The Reformation was a movement in which hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions in the 1500s, were brought to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts, where they began seeking to know the Scriptures to see if the things they had been taught were true. Instead of believing whatever the the priest said, instead of believing whatever the teacher said, they wanted to know, is it in the pages of the Bible? What does the word reformed mean? The most basic level, a reformed Christian is a Christian who believes that the Bible and the Bible alone is the supreme authority over our lives that we should be constantly going to the Bible as God's Word to let it shape our thinking, to let it shape our beliefs, to let it shape our behaviors. We used to think very differently than we do now. We used to believe and act very differently than we do now. It was the Word that God used to cause us to be reborn 
And now, having been born again by the Word of God, we are now being reformed by the Word of God. Our, our lives are being uh, conformed to the image of Christ's Son as its truth comes to bear on our souls. The Reformers rejected the idea that there are two sources of divine authority. Right? The, the Roman Catholic Church certainly emphasized it at the time. They still believe it, that there are two sources of infallible divine authority. The Bible and the apostolic succession that comes to, to fruition in the Pope, in the office of the Pope. And so they claimed that not only the Bible was infallible, but that the Pope, when speaking in his office as shepherd of the church, was also infallible. There was already, even for the most simple of people in the days of the Reformation, it was already becoming clear something was wrong because they began to realize that things that they knew to be true from the Bible were clearly in contradiction from things that the Pope had declared. And so you have what the Bible says here, and you have what the Pope says here, and they were clearly in contradiction with one another, and yet they were being told that both were infallible, perfect sources of knowing God's Word. Just like in Romania and many other countries today, uh, this teaching of apostolic tradition led many priests to teach the people that the Bible was really not given to them. The Bible was given to religious leaders to be interpreted by religious leaders to the people. They taught that the people themselves could not be trusted to understand the Bible correctly without the help of the priest. Until the printing press, most people did not own a Bible. In fact, most people could not read even if they had had one. In the century after the printing press, Bibles were now becoming available, but they were expensive. And those who owned them were the exception rather than the rule. This is not like you and me who have you know, eight Bibles in our homes. These are people for whom owning a copy of the Scriptures was a rare thing. And so they had been taught to look to the priest. Look to the priest. Let them interpret the Scriptures to you. Meanwhile, the priesthood had become a corrupt institution. The vast majority of priests were not born-again believers. Men became priests through family connections, through backroom deals. Priests often became very wealthy. They, they wielded great power in the areas in which they served. Priests were supposed to be celibate, but they had a great number of the priests openly flaunted their mistresses. Uh, they were often known for their drunkenness, their public drunkenness, and their wicked living. And so in the Reformation, men like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Knox began publishing these sermons, publishing these tracts and booklets, kinds of small booklets especially that the common man could have and that would be cheap. And in these documents, they quoted Scripture after Scripture, shining the light of the Bible on the false teaching that the people had been receiving for so long. The, the Reformers didn't just argue against the corruptions of the priests. They went back to the Bible and sought to give the common man a knowledge of what the Scriptures actually teach. And what was the scriptural basis for doing this? 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Luther said this, he said, a simple layman armed with scriptures is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Uh, It's the word that equips people. Uh, the reformers took very seriously Galatians 1.9. Galatians 1.9 says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. And therefore the reformers held there is only one gospel, and it is the gospel found in the pages of the Bible. The the gospel we have received in the scriptures. Luther said, the true rule is this. God's word shall establish articles of faith and no one else, not even an angel, can do so. And so this this was what was underneath everything that happened in those days, leading to the gospel being recovered, leading to you and I being saved. I hope you recognize the way God used what happened all these years ago to lead to the gospel coming to us. It's helpful to remember that in these days, the Catholic Church was not the way we think about the Catholic Church today. We think of a Catholic Church, I tend to think of a building where the people gather to, to have Mass, In the days of the Reformation, the Catholic Church was an empire. It was the Holy Roman Empire. It had its own laws. It had political power over people's lives. It had its own military that fought in wars. Kings and queens bowed to the power and the political pressure of the Pope and the cardinals of the Holy Roman Empire. In his institutes, Calvin said that the Catholic Church in his day believed that God had given authority to that church to do anything it wanted. There was nothing that disturbed the church more than being told that Christ rules by His Word and that if the church does anything in which it wanders from the Word, it has wandered from Christ. Calvin talking about all of the arguments that the Catholic Church gave for why it felt it could do anything it wanted. He said this. He said, These ravings are admirably refuted by a single expression of an apostle. Paul testifies that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2.20 This is, this is what the reformers did. They, they pointed people back to the Scriptures. And Calvin's point was this, the teaching of the apostles and prophets in the Scripture. This is the foundation. If you leave the foundation, what happens to the building? Right? What happens to a building if it begins moving off the foundation? It falls apart. It's no longer safe or secure. What did they teach about the Bible? Reformers taught the same truths we've been seeking to teach on on Wednesday nights in the Firm Foundations program. They taught that the Bible and the Bible alone is the sole supreme authority over our lives. Yes, we should submit to other authorities, but only when doing so does not contradict the Bible. You should submit to the authorities in your life, but not if submitting to that authority means disobeying the Bible. The Bible is preeminent as God's Word. And so we must not obey the Bible. We must not disobey the Bible. 
The Reformers taught the sufficiency of the Bible. That we do not need any other word from God. The Bible gives us everything we need to know for life and salvation. They taught the clarity of the Bible. That the most important truths that God gives to man are not obscure. They're not vague. You don't have to have a seminary degree to understand the main points of the Bible. As the Reformation spread throughout Europe, people who had before been worshiping the dead bones of saints suddenly began to to see and to understand that the Bible is what they should be looking to. Before, they had been bowing down to images and to icons, praying to, to various saints. Suddenly, they had a new esteem for the Bible. They were hungry for it. They were thirsty for it. They wanted to know more of its truth. God in these days began to raise up pastors who moved the pulpit back to the center of Christian worship. These pastors began reading the Bible in the worship services and reading the Bible in the language that the people could understand. And the people often listened earnestly, intently, soaking up God's truth. They were taught that the Bible is precious, that it is better than gold, sweeter than honey. They were taught that to hear the Bible is to hear the voice of God Himself. And so pastors began preaching and teaching the Bible, moving through books of the Bible in their sermons. If you go home and Google the sermons of Luther or the sermons of Calvin, you will be shocked at how simple they were. These men preached in very plain speech, they spoke in the, in the language of the common man, though they were certainly academic and scholars themselves. They, they got right with the people, talked to them on their level. They, they simply read the Scriptures and did their best to explain what this means to the people. And when there was something controversial or something difficult, they didn't simply say, here's my opinion, but they gave other Scriptures to help back up why they took the position it did. They made very clear that it was the Word that had authority and not them. And it was only insofar as they helped people to understand the Word that they were being true and faithful pastors. Luther said, The church is built on the Word of the Gospel, which is the Word of God's wisdom and virtue. He said, The Word of God preserves the church of God. And so... Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, I ask you first, is this a conviction that we hold and hold dearly? Is this a conviction that you hold and would die for? Have you come to see the Scriptures as the very Word of God, worthy of your diligent study, worthy of your attention, Do you cherish the Word of God? Are you reading it, seeking to understand it? Are you hiding it in your heart? Do you cherish the Lord's day? Because it's on this day that we get to have the Word of God pressed with even more power upon our souls together as a church family. Are you thankful that you have this in your own language? Men died to give us this in our language. Are you thankful for it? Do you make use of it? 
God has revealed to you His glory in the Bible. He has revealed to you His love for you in the Bible. He gives you the gospel. Where? In the Bible. The promises that God gives you to strengthen your soul, where are they to be found? In the Bible. God gives you a true worldview, a proper assessment of man, insight into the big picture of history. Where? In the Bible. The Bible is a living book. The Spirit works through it to affect our souls for good. Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure in all the world. And it is through the Bible that we come to know Christ, that we hear from Him, that we sit under His teaching and learn from Him. It is through the Bible that we behold God's holy character with the eyes of faith and worship. This is something greater than the Grand Canyon. This is something greater than, than, than the bright stars on a clear uh, summer's night. This is something beyond that that has come into your hands. Our Savior, the lover of our souls, the bridegroom, our King. He is warm in love for us. He is strong in His protection of us. He is wise in His leadership of us. And we ought to commune with Him. How do we commune with Christ? Through the Bible. Church, do we love it as we ought? Is it as precious to us as it ought to be? Just as the authority of the Bible was under attack in the days of the Reformation, it is still under attack today. The next few lessons in the, the firm foundations thing that we're doing on Wednesday nights, I especially wish all of our teenagers could be there because you're getting ready to go off to college. You're going to hear it from the professors, probably from fellow students. How are you going to respond when they put that, that Bart Ehrman book in your hand where he seeks to systematically destroy every argument for the Bible being God's Word? Do you know what you need to know? Do you have the assurance that you need to have this is worth me living and dying for? Can you say I know to the bottom of my soul from the toes to the top of my head that this is the Word of God and every word proves true? Over the next several weeks, we're going to be giving a defense of that, answering the critics in the next few weeks on Wednesday night. So, so be there. Will our faith hold up? This is where the rubber meets the road. If we are not prepared, if we are not all firmly convinced of the Bible's divine authority, then we will look to a thousand other places, especially to our own so-called wisdom, to learn how to live our lives. If we are not convinced about this book, we will not turn to it to learn how to live well. We will waste our lives. We will live for trifles and find ourselves condemned because we wouldn't give heed to the very Word of God Himself sitting on our bookshelves. And so my prayer is that the Spirit would give us eyes to see what a treasure we have in the Bible. To the teaching, to the testimony. Does that resonate in here for you? Is that what someone comes to you and you're talking about something and they say, you know, I really think Mitt Romney should do this. I really think President Obama should do this. I really think a good family is a family that does this. I really, do you ever in your heart immediately say, okay, where is it in the Bible? 
What's your, what's your basis? Is this just your opinion? Is just this, you, you feel that way? Give me something sure. Show it to me in the Bible. That's, that's what Baptists were, by the way. That's, that's, that's something that especially marked us as Baptists from the beginning of our roots. We were people of the book. Show it to us in the Bible. We'll believe it. Presbyterians were arguing for infant baptism. We said, show it to us in the book. We couldn't find it. We didn't believe it. We are to be people of the book. All right, number two. Number two. Sola Scriptura was the foundational cry of the Reformation, but it was not the heartbeat of the Reformation. The heartbeat of the Reformation, what drove the men and women and boys and girls to live their lives and give their lives in the days of the Reformation was this one. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Everybody say, Soli Deo Gloria. All right, try it one more time. Soli Deo Gloria. Good. Soli alone, Deo, God, Gloria, glory. Glory to God alone. You see, by God's grace, what people began to discover as the scriptures were read, as the scriptures were preached, as the scriptures were heard, what people began to discover was nothing less than God himself. Through the word, people were given a glimpse of the glory of God, his holy character, his holy attributes. People began to taste and to see that God is good, so good that everything else in the world is counted as rubbish compared to what they were now experiencing in knowing this God. The word glory in the Hebrew is the word kabod, it literally means weight, right? Um, it's, it was very closely associated with value because in those days, if you wanted to know what a, what a coin was valued as or whether a chunk, what a chunk of metal would be valued as, it was valued by its weight. The heavier its weight, the more its value. And so when the scriptures speak of kabod, the glory of God, they're speaking of God's inherent value, God's inherent worth. And through the word, In the days of the Reformation, and it's continued since then to us this very morning, people began to get a sense of just how much God is worth. During the Middle Ages, religion was all about man. Just like it is in many places still today, right? Religion is all about us. It was mainly about man finding a way to be okay when they die, right? It was about what can I do for my own sake, to make sure that I'm going to be okay in the afterlife. But now, through the preaching and teaching and the hearing and the reading of the Word, people are beginning to see that there are bigger things in this world than you or me. Even bigger things in this world than your salvation or my salvation. That God is perfect in every way. That He is working all things for His glory that He is putting on display for His own enjoyment all of His own glorious character, that you and I are a teeny-weeny little part of something much more fantastic than we could have ever imagined, that we all exist to bring glory to God and that our lives will bring glory to God. Ultimately, we will either be a part of God displaying His awesome wrath as He punishes us for sins in hell, 
or we will be a part of God displaying His awesome love and mercy as He graciously forgives our sins and brings us to Himself in heaven. Either way, the central thing is God and His glory. When the Reformers talked about giving glory to God, they were not talking about giving God something He didn't already have. When we say we're giving glory to God, it's not that God lacks glory and we're somehow giving it to Him. You and I cannot make God greater than He is, no matter how much we praise Him, no matter how many songs we sing, no matter what we do for Him. We don't make Him greater than He is. He's already infinitely great. In fact, He's the very definition of greatness. Giving glory to God means recognizing God's infinite worth, delighting in God's awesome character, sharing in God's joy in who He is. God delights in who He is. And for His own delight, He expresses who He is through history, through creation, through providence, through redemption. He is delighting in expressing who He is. Giving glory to God is you coming into fellowship with God so that you share in His own joy in Him. So the Reformation was, this was the heartbeat. It was God-centered. It was all about God. Where did they get this God-centered passion from? Well, they got it straight from the Bible. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. They got it from hundreds of verses in the Psalms that say things like, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Or, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. They got this God-centered passion from Christ Himself, who lived every moment of His day on earth for the glory of the Father. In fact, we have in John 12, 28, we have Jesus praying, and He says, Father, glorify Your name. And do you remember what happens next? God the Father spoke audibly from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This, this God-centeredness was utterly foreign to the teaching of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire had been solely focused on, on men and the stuff of this world. If you get a taste of this, you're going to seem foreign to the people of this world. If, if this Copernican revolution takes place in your heart, you will be radically different from the vast majority of people walking this planet today. If you become obsessed with the glory of God the way God and the saints of all and all true believers become obsessed with the glory of God, you will not make sense to the world. You will be like Joseph, content and joyful in the midst of the hardest situations and circumstances. Mount Hermon, do we have a passionate commitment to the glory of God above all else? Do you have a commitment to the preeminence of God's glory? Is this the supreme litmus test by which we weigh all of our decisions? Can we say that God is the highest, the preeminent, the supreme love of our lives? If not, we are, sub we are settling 
for idolatry. If God is not the supreme love of your life, then we are settling for a puny God, something in this world that is not worthy of being called God, rather than the real, the almighty, the exalted, the majestic God, who is the true never-ending fountain of joy and delight. I wonder if you can relate to Jonathan Edwards. He was a little bit after the Reformation, but I'm going to quote him anyway. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. Just see if you relate to this. He said, the greatest moments of my life, the greatest moments of my life have not been those that were concerned with my own salvation, but those when I was carried into communion with God and beheld His beauty and I desired His glory. I rejoice and yearn to be emptied and annihilated of self in order that I might be filled with the glory of God and Christ alone. Friends, have you tasted that? Have you ever tasted what it is just to be caught up in adoration of the glory of God and just to have this overwhelming sense in your soul, and He's my God. He's so good, and He's my God. Don't deserve Him. I'm not worthy of Him, but He's my God, and He's glorious. Teenagers, youth, young people, have you experienced this? Do you know what this is? The chief instrument that God uses to open people's eyes to His glory and to give them sweet delight in knowing Him and walking with Him is the preaching of the gospel. Nowhere in all of history is God's awesome character put on greater display than at the cross of Jesus. Do you want to know how loving God is. He's so loving that even when sinners hated Him and made themselves His enemies, despised Him and cursed His name, He was willing to die to show them His mercy. That's love. Do you want to know how righteous God is? God is so righteous that even when He decided to save sinners, He would not let their sins go unpunished. He demanded that justice be served, even if serving justice meant His own Son having to bear the penalty in the place of sinners. You want to know how powerful God is? God is so powerful that even when Satan and all his demons came against Him with their strongest attack, seeking to destroy Him by murdering His own Son, they ended up discovering that their great plot against God was actually them as puppets in God's hands the whole time. And what they thought was going to be their greatest victory over God was actually their guaranteed eternal doom forever. His great victory over Him. Do you want to see how wise God is? He's so wise that even the angels in heaven have not ceased marveling at the redemptive plan that God has designed culminating at the cross. Think about the depths of the wisdom of God at the cross. How in one moment, in one act, He both forsook His Son, cursed His Son, poured out on His Son all the wrath that our sins deserve, and in that same moment was making His Son the Savior for sinners, the one worthy of our eternal gratitude and worship. In other words, in the very same moment that God was bringing Jesus low, He was setting Jesus up to be the exalted one above all. I mean, this is the wisdom of God. Friends, here's the point. 
at the cross, we see God's mercy and His justice, His power and His wisdom. All of God's attributes come together in remarkable harmony and remarkable beauty at the cross of Jesus Christ, which is why if we want people to see the glory of God, what do we give them? The gospel of Christ crucified. This is what the Reformation was. It was the rediscovery of the gospel, and as it was preached, people's lives were turned upside down by the glory of God. I wonder, is this true of us? Have we found such delight in God that we know nothing compares with Him? Have we found such delight in God that we now enjoy every other thing only in relation to Him? Can I say that I enjoy my wife, but I enjoy her as God's precious gift to me? And what a gift. Can I say that I enjoy my children, but as incredible gifts from God's hands, formed and fashioned in their mother's womb, surprising me all the time with things they they say and they do? Do I see the glory of God there? Does it point me back to God? Whether it's friends or family, whether it's food or possessions, do we delight in all of these things as a part of our delight in God? Do we enjoy everything in a God-centered way with gratitude going up to Him, seeing something of His power, of His wisdom, of His goodness in everything that exists in this world? Do all of God's gifts only draw us closer to Him wooing us closer to Him by seeing more of His love in them? Or do we find ourselves more impressed with His gifts than we are with Him? Do we find ourselves living for His gifts rather than living for His glory? Are we committed to living for God's glory? Another famous Piper illustration, to live for God's glory does not mean that we make much of God as with a microscope, right? With with a microscope, we take something that's small, and we live in such a way that we're making it look big, right? You ever heard of somebody making a mountain out of a molehill, right? Right? They're living in such a way, they're acting in such a way that something small seems to be being made a big deal out of. It's not the way we give glory to God. Rather, we give glory to God as with a telescope. A telescope takes something huge, and brings it down to where we can have some glimpse of it and see it and savor it. We want to live in such a way that the glorious God, who is mind-blowingly glorious beyond anything we can imagine, we want to live in such a way that when people see us as with a telescope, they see something of the glorious God who exists and who is worthy of all their love and obedience. We cannot make people see God in all His glory. Even we have not yet seen God in all His glory. The best is yet to come, even for us. All we've had is the appetizers. The feast is still ahead. We've, we've entered the Grand Canyon, where, but, but the best part is around the corner, and we're, we're not there yet. But we can live in such a way, with such trust in God's promises, with such confidence in His Word, that others will see in us that this God is truly glorious. And so, have you submitted your life to this? Have you submitted every calling of your life to this overarching theme? 
Is it your happy purpose in life to fulfill every obligation God has placed on you in such a way that people can see how good He is? My call to us this morning as a church is very simple. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, may this be our foundation. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. And Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, may this be our heartbeat. Sola Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. And I close with the words of Revelation 7.12. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.